partnership with 2SER, the Walkley Talks podcast presents the latest episode of For the State, a weekly program about the media featuring Australia's leading journalists, broadcast live each Monday at 6.30pm on 2SER 107.3. It's For the State for the week, beginning Monday the 13th of April, live on 2SER Radio and across the Community Radio Network, your weekly look at the world of journalism and the media. My name's Jack Fisher. Tonight... Well, after a week of protests, we'll look at how the media covered the Reclaim Australia rallies last week and Friday's protests against the closure of Aboriginal communities in Western Australia. Also, what happened when a French TV network was brought down by the Islamic State, 2UE Radio cuts its newsroom, and do live streaming apps like Meerkat and Periscope have a place in journalism? Our guest tonight, Max Chalmers, journalist with New Matilda. Hi, Max. G'day, Jack. Thanks for having me. We've also got Melissa Sweet, independent medical journalist and curator of Crikey's Croaky blog. Melissa, are you there? I sure am. Thank you. Lovely to hear your voice. And Andrew Moon, social media producer at the ABC. Hi, Andrew. Hey, Jack. Good to be here. Good, good. Now, as always, if you've got something to say about what we're discussing, you can get in touch via Twitter. Our handle is ForthestateAU, all letters, no numbers. Well, last week, an extraordinary thing happened in French media. Public broadcaster TV5 Monde had 11 of their channels briefly taken off air after they came under attack by hackers claiming allegiance to Islamic State. Well, the hackers also gained access to their websites and Facebook pages, leaving a message on the TV5 Monde website that read IMIS, along with a banner by a group that calls itself Cyber Caliphate. Well, Islamic State are, of course, infamous for their direct attacks on journalists. Max, what makes a target such as a news organisation so attractive? Well, I think there are there are a few a few obvious reasons, but probably um, the best one as far as an organisation like ISIS is concerned is that you absolutely guarantee that uh, an attack like this will get broad coverage. And part of that, I think, is, um, if we're being honest about it, the sort of narcissism of the media. Um, I mean, what do we know well? We know media. We work in the industry. We all um, follow media more than anyone else um, does. And so attacking a media organisation like this guarantees that everyone else will start to look at them. And, you know, I I think uh, they were probably vindicated in their plans. They got broad coverage all around the world for this incident. If they'd hacked, a, say, a US government organisation or like an NGO or something, um, it wouldn't have been the same level of coverage. And for IS, I mean, obviously, uh, that's what they're, they're known for, um, is their ability to, and, and they're remarkably um, successful at it, to get out there to use the media as a tool to propagate their messages and to push their agenda by sort of using the media platform that's provided and getting out there. Um, one way they do that, obviously, is by... Uh, orchestrating particularly horrific attacks and promoting them using the shock value that they know the media will run with. Um, In this case, it was by attacking the media itself and then using it as a tool. Yeah, Andrew, what do you think? Why were they so attractive a target as a news organisation? I I think it's an interesting one when you also look at, I mean, what Max said is completely true. I mean, media organisations are going to report this with a lot of attention. But the other thing is, and this is what's particularly interesting about this story, is when you have large media organizations um, like the one I work for, like the ABC. I mean, they're huge organizations and security is a massive issue, Um, particularly when you have um, so many different people needing to access so many different platforms like never before. You go back even just 15 years, 10 years, less than that, what do journalists need to have access to? The computer and maybe the, the system, the rudimentary system that they're publishing work online in terms of password access but now i mean you've got all all these platforms that everyone's reporting to i mean it's not entirely surprising to me i don't think the level that this attack infiltration of this 
attack because these are such difficult organizations to secure at a really high level right across the board when you've got so many people working for them. Andrew, I haven't completely grasped it myself. Obviously, a, a website or a Facebook page is a, is a fairly easy target. How did that then have the flow on effect that all of their channels were taken off air for a, or affected for a few hours? I mean, one of the things that people talk about here is social engineering. So the idea that you can trick one person in an organization, or all it takes is tricking one person organization into opening an email or downloading a file. And once that particular file or that access is gained through that human click, um, then the rest of it can kind of go from there. And I mean, Again, as coming to what I was just saying before, I mean, these organizations are huge and it's not like you're dealing with a little media startup here. You're dealing with uh, legacy media organizations who have employees who have varying levels of skill in all manner of different areas, including computer literacy. So, I mean, it's not entirely surprising um, when this thing happens. So once you've kind of got that gateway, there's this discussion here about how an organization like this um, has computer networks where it's actually quite easy to step through different levels of the network. So you can get from just that person's computer to that particular office, but then you might actually be able to get into the broadcast system. And that's what we're talking here about. The interesting thing is, and the scary thing here is how these hackers were able to step from the basic uh, computer network of the office to getting to those seemingly secure broadcast networks that do control all elements of the broadcast operation, TV, radio, etc. But it's definitely a very, very big wake-up call for media, but also organizations in general. I mean, media will be the target here because they can they broadcast, they set the news agenda, they will um, get these messages out. But it's, it's a wake-up call for any organization of size and influence. Melissa, do you think the, uh, the profile that media have created for themselves makes them a very attractive target? Uh, well, I must admit, as I was listening to your um, conversation, I was thinking with my very small media hat on in terms of, um, you know, you're talking about how challenging it is for big media organisations to cope with these sort of attacks. And, you know, I'm sort of very much at the small end of media. <laughs> um, and it's just, it's not only attacks like this by ISIS, it's a much bigger picture of state surveillance, corporate surveillance. I mean, I just think it's such a huge issue and it's difficult enough for big media organisations, but for small independent media, how do you um, protect yourselves and your sources? Max, it's very you, challenging. Yeah, Max, you certainly belong to a small media organisation. I think part of this whole new era of fast reporting is about journalists, especially in small entities, having direct access to the front end of their pages and the front end of their websites. What's new Matilda's operate involved? Well, no need to divulge. <laughs> but, but, but what's your, your operation it's like? It's a closely guarded secret, our yeah. technology, our back end, uh, a secret that is guarded from many of us who work in the organisation. Um, but no, we all actually have access to it um, because we have such a small staff. I mean, one advantage is that you you know there's no real ability to spill unless someone really screws up. There are so few of us there. The chance of human error is lower. Um, but certainly, I, I mean, that's, that's how it works now. I know I've been um, doing court reporting on, on days when I've thought, you know, I'll get out the door. I'll open my laptop, I'll, um, I'll slam it in the back end as soon as it's done. And I've been beaten, uh, BuzzFeed were there that day and they were uploading the story as the, the, um, the judgment was being read out. It was going straight from the judge's mouth into their back end and that's the kind of turnaround that we're all working on and against now. Um, so it's clearly an issue, but I think it's, it's interesting that you mentioned sources because the thing that really scared me about this attack is that 
when I'm writing stories that deal with delicate sources, what I'm usually thinking is, is there a way that if this is particularly delicate that a government agency would be able to search my computer or my documents or our back end or whatever to, to put it together and figure out where this came from? The scary thing about this attack is that it's suddenly it gets you thinking, well, hang on, it's not just government actors now who are going to be able to get into my computers and, and look at my documents and my metadata and stuff. It's potentially uh, third-party players um, who are, in this case, far more malicious. And, you know, it, it scares me that um, a corporate group or a terrorist organisation or whoever could be able to get into your backend like that and piece together, I guess not so much your website but more your personal computer, piece together where stories have come from and potentially target or endanger sources. I mean, I think that's quite alarming. Yeah, Andrew, you, in addition to reporting, do, I believe, a bit of teaching in the area of digital. Mm-hmm. What, what, what is, I suppose, best practice, if you will, for organisations, especially big ones such as your own, in terms of tying up those vulnerabilities? I think, um, I mean, there's, there's two really interesting points for me here. And I think, Max, to your point you've just talked about, I mean, that is something that is increasingly challenging. And I don't think, really, uh, many newsrooms out there besides perhaps those are like The Guardian and, and similar who have a reputation of dealing with these really sensitive stories of, of protecting sources in this sense of, of using things like Tor and using messenger apps that are completely encrypted. I mean, that's something that's, that's fascinating in its own right. In terms of what we kind of teach here, what we kind, and, and the thing with an organisation like the ABC is we broadcast on a number of different platforms, a number of different genres across divisions. It's a, it's a, it's a massive organisation. And the thing is, I mean, one of the things when we talk about social media and, and training journalists is not, anything that you post online should be presumed as public on social media. So we, te- we have, when you train journalists, and someone might be not just journalists, but anyone might be new to social media, they think, I can post something on my Facebook, and it doesn't matter because that's between my friends. So the training I always teach is, look, look how easy it is for me to screen grab something off my network and send it around. I mean, that's a basic level thing. But in terms of like a bigger organizational thing, the best thing we can do is constantly, I guess, have our own internal security. And, and one of the things that we, we do is kind of saying, you don't need to access the password. Twitter has tools that basically, if you're, if you're working on an account, um, you can have access to it through your own personal account, uh, Twitter account, for example, but you'll never actually see the password of the enterprise account. So working on things like that, tightly managing access, um, but it's not easy. Like it's definitely a constant challenge because threats keep evolving, but also you have employees starting and leaving the organization all the time. So it's it's definitely something that's evolving, but it's, it needs to be right at the top of, um, of the radar, I guess, in terms of managing it. And one thing I noticed about this attack on uh, the French TV network was that there was a certain amount of coverage of it, but I seem to recall a much bigger kerfuffle about the CIA's website being attacked a few years ago. And I think it's very easy for audiences to get the wrong end of the stick on this one. Have they attacked, you know, the shop window or have they attacked the back room, that sort of thing? I mean, Andrew, is it difficult for a journalist to communicate the severity of attacks such as these? Uh, I I think so, especially when you're dealing with, when you're talking about how do you communicate to an audience. And I mean, technology in itself sometimes is difficult to um, communicate because it's so complex, but it is I totally believe the responsibility of the journalist to add context to the issue. I mean, it takes time and, and, and Max, I think you hit the nail on the head about the time pressures of reporting in a lot of these environments are huge. Um, but one of the things that we teach, for example, when you're, when you're teaching someone to live tweet is spend the time before building a context 
around your reporting. So you can say, if you are talking example, in this case of the, the French um, media organization getting hacked, explaining, for example, even the term hacking, I mean, what exact networks were encroached and broken into, I hear, what was interrupted. I think um, there are some journalists that I know that do, I think do tech reporting really, really well, and they do that by adding that context so you're not just seeing mentions of words and kind of thinking, oh, is there an assumed knowledge here? I think that's the challenge when you're reporting this kind of thing. Now, we've just seen a fairly busy period recently on the protest schedule in Australia. The weekend before last, the Reclaim Australia group came out to announce their opposition to what they perceived to be the encroachment of un-Australian values, halal foods, even Sharia law on Australian life. Well, they were met with counter-protesters who accused the Reclaimers of bigotry and racism. But on Friday, there was another demonstration, and it was quite an incredible one. Thousands crowded the streets outside Melbourne's Flinders Street Station and in Sydney as well to protest the closure of Aboriginal communities across Western Australia. Now, it seems that there's one rule for some street gatherings and another for others, because the Herald Sun blasted the protesters on Friday of being a selfish rabble for blocking the traffic, basically. Now, why has the Herald Sun taken this line on what seems to have been a peaceful and to be a positive protest in Melbourne, Max? Um, I mean, for fairly obvious reasons, I think it it plays to their um, their general demographic. Um, they don't think their audience are particularly interested in the closure of Indigenous communities. It's obviously not an issue that directly influences a lot of people who are living in Victoria and particularly in Melbourne. So they think it's um, it's just an easy way to make the tabloid to grab the tabloid angle. And I mean, to be frank, I think uh, papers like the Herald Sun um, they target particularly vulnerable communities, and there are a few communities I can think of who would be more vulnerable than those in WA facing closure, having their water and electricity cut off. Um, So it's, I think, honestly, for them, it's just a bit of fun. They don't see it as a particularly important issue. They think they may as well have a bash and um, play a bit of wedge race politics with their readers to sell some newspapers. Melissa, what did you think of this this headline, Selfish Rabble? I just thought it was awful, quite frankly. Um, I followed the Twitter conversation on Saturday morning quite closely and, you know, there was huge kickback and and the sort of typical hashtag subversion that goes on. And one of the comments that really struck me was by a a Melbourne public health practitioner called Daniel Readers and he tweeted, revealed values. Some white people delayed on their way home one night matters more than whole Aboriginal communities having homes at all. And I, I thought that was a really insightful observation. I mean, I know you can look at it at one level as, as the comment previously, you know, more in the pragmatic sense of media trying to sell papers and play to their audience. But I, I think Daniel Reader's comment really goes to a much wider systemic issue in, in mainstream media full stop across Australia, that it is often very much about um, white privilege and, and really ignoring... Um, you know, groups that don't fall within that demographic. Okay. Uh, last week, of course, Prince, well, of course, if you happen to notice, Prince Harry also arrived in the country, and I believe that did gather some crowds, although it was in Canberra, I think. Uh, no one likes being stuck in traffic, but why is there one rule for some events and not others? And it seems to have something to do with them being official events or not, Max? Yeah, I mean, um, it's interesting, I guess, to think about the the reclaim one maybe more so because obviously you know a prince comes into town there's a strong celebrity angle so in terms of news values people um like that but uh, you know then it, you take a step back and you you look at the issue um a prince coming to australia versus the closure of hun- scores of communities um f- affecting hundreds of hundreds of people it's clearly a huge huge issue and you'd think a far bigger news issue um 
I mean, I think to some degree it is kind of obvious that, um, you know, that that value of celebrity, that's what gets people to click through stories. It's also easy to cover. It's not a hard story. You send someone out, you get some photos of the prince with someone with a sign saying he's got red hair, this is great. Like, compared to dealing with the issue of, you know, removal of um, Aboriginal communities from traditional lands in WA, which is a big, complex story happening over a big area and something that, you know, to be frank, most journalists um, probably have no idea about the context or the history that relates to it, um, let alone the immediate realities in those communities, which they haven't been to. Um, so, you know, from from that angle, I think probably even journalists who are sympathetic would not end up covering a story like that. And, you know, it does take a lot of resources to cover properly. So that's the context. And then so when a protest like that happens, I think a lot of the media don't understand it. And the rest are, you know, like the Herald Sun, potentially hostile and um, in some ways almost openly racist. Um, so, yeah, I think that kind of help explains to some degree. Melissa, let's talk about this uh, this coverage of this topic of uh, community closures in WA. Uh, Tony Abbott's comment about the lifestyle choices has certainly got a lot of attention. We haven't seen too many mainstream news reporters travelling out to that spot. How has the coverage fared in the mainstream press versus uh, some of the independent press? Well, to tell you the terrible truth, I do get most of my news via Twitter um, these days. So I I really am reading a lot of um, online news and alternative, well, so-called alternative news. So I'm probably not the best person to ask how the mainstream covered it because, you know, I don't actually read a, a newspaper cover to cover in the way that I used to. I tend to sort of see the articles that go around. I think it's very difficult to make sweeping general statements about how media covers issues these days because there are there is such a greater diversity of voices. I mean, you can get fantastic coverage from people's blogs and so on, you know, while the mainstream may not cover an issue. Just, just generally, I think there is something really quite profound happening um, in response to both the closure of the threatened closure of the communities as well as, well as the wider hostile environment, um, that hostile policy environment that um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are facing. You know, there's been a lot of issues that they're dealing with and, and there's this sort of quite profound nationwide social movement of protest um, developing. And if you're not if you're not sort of following it on social media, it would be very easy probably to miss the fact that this is happening if you relied only upon mainstream media. So, you know, I think there is this very interesting story developing <clears throat> out of sight of a lot of mainstream Australia. And I did actually publish a post today from a fellow called Damien Bonson, um, who was upset about the um, selfish rabble headline and some of the associated discussion. But he, he made the point in his article that he thought there was a really, um, he called it a defiant act of reconciliation happening that, the SOS Black Australia rallies that have been happening, um, including the ones last week in Melbourne, Sydney, and also on the same day as that rally in Melbourne, there was a community meeting in Geraldton in WA. So there's been a lot of country towns where these rallies have been happening <clears throat> as well that you know mainstream Australia mightn't have heard about. Um, so I, I think Damien's point, you know, that this is a defined act of reconciliation, um, and he wrote, um, "Get on board or respectfully get out of the way." So. Um, you know, we can be dispirited. Well, I can be dispirited by things like the um, selfish rabble headline. But on the other hand, you know, I think sections of the community are standing up. And I think that's a positive thing. OK. And just quickly before we go to a break, because uh, we do need to mention 2UE. Uh, well, it was a sad end to their week last week when the journalists at the radio station 2UE delivered their final news bulletin. 
The 2UE Newsroom is it's been closed as their parent company Fairfax Radio merges with 2GB's parent company Macquarie, and the news services are being consolidated. Well, between 9 and 11 newsroom staff are expected to lose their jobs. Now, former ABC journo Lyndall Curtis reckons commercial media such as 2UE doesn't get the same attention or their journalists the same sympathy when they cut down their newsrooms. Andrew, I'll bring you in here. What could be the reason for that? I think this this is an interesting one because uh, the point that uh, Lyndall Curtis makes here about visibility is certainly true. I mean, radio, radio in, in this environment of social media and TV news uh, probably gets the least amount of attention because you turn, I turn on my radio if I'm driving somewhere or, I, or I'm coming into work and that's when I listen to the radio and that's probably about it during the day. Um, I think the point that she makes, I think the point that is really important is that uh, any cutting of journalists is a loss to the media as a whole. And when you look at the pressure that journalists face, um, I used to work at News 24. I mean, that's a that's a 24-hour operation. And, and, and during the day when big stories are breaking in Canberra, everyone is no one is taking a break. It's a really busy operation. So I think, I mean, the general thing to say is it is a loss because media, I mean, journalists rely on other journalists to see what's going on, potentially um, get some assistance, see if the angles are similar to what they're doing. So, I mean, that's, I guess, the sad thing from it. The point that Lyndall makes is that uh, any loss like this of journalists is, um, is, a, is a real dark day um, for the media in general. Now, Meerkat and Periscope, well, you've probably heard about them. If you haven't, well, they're both new apps that will let you live stream to the masses from your phone camera, if that's the sort of thing that you want to do. Now, one of the most interested groups of people watching these two apps are journalists, and nobody seems to be quite sure what they could be used for. Max, what do you think live streaming apps could contribute to journalism? Look, I haven't given either of these a go. I've just sort of been watching with curiosity, as I tend to do um, when these things pop up and everyone gets excited about a new um, app or or service, which supposedly is going to improve journalism. I sort of just sit on the sides and see how everyone else goes. And if it starts starts to work, then maybe I consider learning how to use it. Um, But I think live streaming is is an interesting one. Um, I'm not sure that it adds a, a great deal of value to be able to do that. I think a slight delay, like once you can, you know, we're all so well equipped now to record wherever we go, um, it, basic training with a basic phone and you can get something that online doesn't look too bad. So I don't think it's um, it's a huge change. Um, what's interesting about it maybe is that we're moving towards formats online that encourage shorter and shorter grabs. Um, so to the point where it's like, you know, you, you only something only has news value while it's happening, while it's live streaming, even if you're, you know, like us, you're not like a live platform, you're not ABC24 constantly um, covering what's happening. It's like you basically have to something cover something instantaneously because it's gone once it's gone. So in that way, I, I think it's kind of interesting and, and potentially useful as well because, um, you know, why live blog a, a really interesting Senate inquiry that's going on when you could just stream it. Um, we have had Vine, of course, for a little while and those sorts of short form things, but I'll pick up on that in a second, that ability to upload straight away. Melissa, I understand that the Crokey blog has got a new initiative and it's called Just Justice and you've used Periscope already as part of that. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, well, it was just totally coincidental, really. We launched Just Justice, which is a crowdfunding campaign at Possible, just a little little um, plug there, mm-hmm. um, which we aim to produce a series of articles running over some months that will then be packaged up into an e-book. And it's, it's very much about taking a solution-focused approach to the over-incarceration of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, so looking at what needs to change to um, stop this from happening. 
Um, but what will be different about this from some other journalism projects is that almost half of the money we want to go back to community members for telling their stories. And I was just so delighted when I discovered Periscope last week, and we've already used it once, um, is that it's a great way of engaging people in the crowdfunding campaign. So last um, week, Summer May Finlay, who's a public health advocate and a Yorta Yorta woman who's um, very much involved in the Just Justice Project, she did a short periscope just talking about it from her point of view. You know, we had quite a lot of engagement. And, and it wasn't just that. We got such great ideas from people who um, tuned in on Periscope and, you know, ideas for stories, ideas for making our crowdfunding campaign better. And, in fact, just another little plug, if you don't mind, Summer's going to do another Periscope um, this Thursday night from 5.30 to 6 p.m. So if you've okay. got a free half hour, join her. And people can find out more about that searching, what, Just Justice, is it? Yeah, just justice and possible. But, yeah, I can see lots of potential for potential. Periscope, okay. even in telling stories. Yeah. Andrew, some people have ridiculed these apps, while others rightly point out that, well, Twitter seemed pretty stupid when it landed. And there was just no knowing how significant a platform that would become for, for news sharing. Is there a valid lesson, do you think, in that? Yeah, I think that kind of hits the point in the sense that a lot of these apps come into their own when circumstance demands it or when someone finds a unique use for it. And... Uh, I remember uh, working uh, when I was back at News 24 in 2011, which was easily um, one of the biggest years in news for a very long while because we had the Arab uh, Arab Spring and we had the um, Japanese uh, earthquake and tsunami. And in a lot of those situations, we also had some pretty serious flooding and, and, and cyclone uh, Yazi in Queensland. In a lot of the situations, social media came into its own because where we weren't able to get other resources, where governments were cutting off state broadcasts where infrastructure was falling down. Twitter wasn't. Twitter Tweets were coming out from people saying, here's the situation on the ground. They were sending photos and things like this. And that's when we really saw that platform come into its own for news. And we learned a lot from that. And I think um, the Hong Kong protests last year saw a real application for peer-to-peer uh, -peer mesh mobile networking in the sense if the cellular network is down, people can still communicate on Wi-Fi between themselves in a thing like a protest. So that was interesting. I think the same is true with live streaming like this. I mean, firstly, the technology is not new. It was around back in 2011 and, and platforms like live stream and new stream are doing it then. Uh, I think the thing is here, uh, journalists, um, I mean, the, the great thing with um, and the example that Melissa talked about, one of the great things about an app like Periscope and, and, and for a use like that is you can reach such a wider audience than you um, may not have expected. But there are two issues that come up. One, I think, is just a bit of vanity use it by journalists who don't actually, or anyone, that doesn't really get, I mean, I guess I would say journalists because journalists have a responsibility to understand how these things should be used. So if it's just giving people a walk around at the studio, that's great, but the better use is being out there as part of the protest and showing audiences something really valuable and worth or engaging in a discussion, an issue they might not know about. And the other quick thing um, I would say with um, a platform like this is just access to it. I mean, not everyone has Periscope. And we need to realise that these apps are still new and most of the yeah. audience isn't quite there. Well, that's all we've got time for this week on Fourth Estate. Don't forget you can check out all of our podcasts on the 2SCR website and you can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Thank you to our guest, Max Chalmers, journalist with New Matilda, who I notice is wearing a Where the Wild Things Are t-shirt, the main character of which is, of course, called Max. Uh, we also had Melissa Sweet, independent medical journalist with Cracky's Croaky and Andrew Moon of the ABC. My name's Jack Fisher. We'll be back at the same time next week. 
We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of 2SER's Fourth Estate. Fourth Estate can be heard live each Monday at 6.30pm on 2SER 107.3 and at 2SER.com. Check out the program description for links to follow 2SER and Fourth Estate. You can subscribe to Walkley Talks on iTunes and follow the Walkleys on Twitter and Facebook to be the first to know about upcoming Walkleys news and events.